Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. (coughs) Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young women walked walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the child was, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, "This is one of the Hebrews' children." Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, "Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you?" And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, "Go." So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because, she said, I drew him out of the water. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs of water to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you've come back so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hands of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter, Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. 
God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Do do you ever wonder what's going on? Maybe um, maybe in your own life. Maybe maybe in the world in general, things seem sometimes to go so well and sometimes so badly. Things maybe just swing endlessly up and down, or, or maybe it's it's even more chaotic than that. Do you ever wonder what on earth God is doing? Perhaps as you listen to to Exodus 2 just now, you thought Moses might have felt like that. That that amazing story of his rescue from the Nile to Pharaoh's palace. And when it seems to be going so well, he loses it all. He he kills someone, runs away. He's effectively exiled from his family and his home. What's going on? What on earth was God doing? Well, let's um, keep that passage open in front of us. Um, that's page uh, 55. And to help us understand the answer to that question, I'd like to look at this passage um, slightly differently this week. So rather than look at successive chunks of verses, um, one block and then the next, I'd, I'd, I'd like just to look at the, the, the whole chapter and then look at it again. Um, Imagine playing hide-and-seek in, in a big old house. At first glance, you, you come into the, that room and you think this, this would be a, a great place to hide. And it would be. But as you explore further, you find something else. Something amazing. And I think, slightly, Exodus 2 is like that. At first glance, there's a really exciting story that we can learn a lot from. But as we look deeper, we'll find even more. So let's, let's start. The first time through. God's in charge, not us. God's in charge, not us. So let's recap the story. Um, chapter 1 finished with that cliffhanger. Having failed to stop the Hebrews multiplying, Pharaoh commanded the the genocidal murder of every Hebrew baby boy. Remember, he'd tried earlier, he'd he'd commanded the Hebrew midwives to kill them, and, and they refused. This time, he's ordered his own people to throw the boys into the Nile. He's mobilized the mob, and the midwives won't be able to help this time. Surely this is it. Game over. But then it's chapter 2, and one of the best-known stories in the Bible. And we focus, we focus in on one particular family of Hebrews. We don't know their names. We don't know any names until verse 10. Here's a family trying to protect their baby from the terror. They have to hide him. But then he's too big, too noisy to hide in their home. So they try something else, something desperate. They're going to leave the baby in a basket in the Nile, floating in the reeds. I don't know what they thought might happen. Did they think they could secretly keep feeding him when um, no one was looking? Maybe uh, they hoped that Pharaoh's command would be 
uh, forgotten about in a few weeks? Did they hope that someone might find him and and look after him, a bit like leaving a baby on a church doorstep in, in medieval times? Was that basket built to protect him from the sun and insects? But how could it protect him from crocodiles and and murderers? Genocide had forced that family to expose their baby to horrible danger because to stay at home is even more dangerous. It's an awful, heartbreaking situation. And his older sister is sent to keep an eye on him to see what happens. What happens turns tragedy to comedy. I think we're meant to find what comes next funny amusing as as well as funny amazing. It's not just a wonderful, happy ending. The baby is, is rescued by the daughter of the genocidal pharaoh. She knows this baby is a Hebrew. She knows he's a boy, but her compassion overrules her father's command and she wants to keep the baby. What a turnaround. Pharaoh wants to kill all the Hebrew baby boys and his plan is undermined by his own daughter. But it gets funnier. The baby's sister offers to find a Hebrew nurse and at the princess's command brings along their own mother. So not only is the baby safely back at home, But his mother's being paid by Pharaoh's family to bring him up. Pharaoh's evil is subverted so exquisitely. And it's only then in verse 10 that we know this boy is Moses. Now remember, when this was read for the first time, everyone hearing would have known exactly who Moses was because he'd just been leading them through the wilderness. Now they might not have known all the backstory though. That the man who'd, who'd led them to victory over Pharaoh had been condemned by him to death as a baby, rescued by his daughter, and brought up in his palace as Pharaoh's adopted grandson. Such delicious irony. Well, now it all looks great. Moses is a prince of Egypt. For 40 years, Acts 7 says he was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in his words and deeds. So did he use his power and his influence in the court to persuade Pharaoh to free the Hebrews? Well, not quite. Because in the, in the second half, from verses 11 to 22, the story moves from comedy to tragedy. From a happy ending to what looks like an embarrassing shambles. The great Moses is brought very low, a sojourner in a foreign land, a stranger, an exile, separated from his home, his family, his people. First off, it it did still look very promising there in verse 11. Despite his 40 years of princely privilege, he, he clearly identifies with the Hebrews. He sees the injustice of their suffering. But then he seems to take the law into his own hands and he kills an Egyptian. He's, he's scorned by his own people. And when Pharaoh finds out, he, he flees to Midian where he marries into a shepherding family. And again, as Acts 7 tells us, he lived there for another 40 years. Now I think it's easy to miss the tragic irony here. But the people of Israel reading this wouldn't have missed it. 
The, the, the Midianites were some of their worst enemies. They'd just fought a, a pretty grim war against them. Uh, you can read about it in Numbers 31. It's a bit like discovering in 1945 that, that before the war, Winston Churchill had married into a family of Nazis and had lived in Germany for many years. It's not what you'd expect. But not only that, he's a shepherd. The Egyptians didn't think much of shepherds. In, in Genesis 46, it says, every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Shepherding was the lowest of the low. And after 40 years as a prince of Egypt, almost overnight, Moses is a shepherd in Midian. It's, it's like a star player in the Wales rugby team getting thrown out of the team, fleeing Wales, and getting a job cleaning the mud off the boots of, in the English dressing room at Twickenham. I think we're meant to see how wildly roller coaster this all is. From, from the nightmare of verses 1 to 3, through that amusing, amazing twists and turns, we get to the high of verse 10, and then the crash from verses 11 to 22. So what's going on? You might have noticed that in all those verses, God wasn't mentioned once. So is that because God wasn't involved? That it was basically down to Moses and his parents and their hopes and dreams and the decisions they made? If you're into uh, this film, that's what you might think from the song, What You Believe. I'm not going to sing it. Who knows what miracles you can achieve when you believe somehow you will. But it would be ludicrous to read verses 1 to 22 and think this all happened according to what they wanted, what they achieved. Not Moses, not, not his parents, not Pharaoh's plans. None of them was in charge of what happened. We're meant to see it was amusingly, amazingly impossible for this to be under their control. And so we're meant to ask, then who is in control? Because if no one's in control, it's just a cosmic joke. A chaotic world of random ups and downs. So many people today do believe that. I mean, events certainly show us that it's out of our control. That unexpected diagnosis, the sudden redundancy, suddenly losing friends at, at school, or on a bigger scale, maybe it's, it's COVID or the climate or the war in Ukraine, all seem to be out of anyone's control. So... Some people put it down to fate or, or their horoscope or, or more scientifically that's just random motions of atoms and but Exodus two answers differently. Look at verses twenty-three to twenty-five. Pharaoh's died, but the Israelites' suffering continues, and who hears their cry? They came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God, 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 God. Moses wants to make it absolutely clear. God 
is there all along. God's behind the scenes. God's on top of it all. He's got it. God is in charge, not us. The events of those first 22 verses were certainly out of human control. But it wasn't random. God's in charge. But we can't, we can't leave it there. God is in charge. But what sort of God is he? Because if the God behind the scenes were, were evil, it would be horrific to think he's in charge. If he, if he didn't care, or if he was one of those sort of petty, capricious gods like those of the ancient world, then it wouldn't make much more difference to us if he was in charge than if it were just random. So, so this time we'll, we'll start in verses 22, and 20, to, to verses 23 to 25, and then we'll look back again at the story. God's got a plan for us. God's got a plan for us. God has a plan. Chapters 1 and 2 are really one section. And Moses starts and finishes this section with the people of Israel. So look back at chapter 1, verse 1. Um, He starts with that proof of God fulfilling his promise to Abraham. That promise from Genesis 12 and elsewhere. the, The promise of many descendants living under God's blessing in the land that he would give them. A promise that he repeated to Isaac. Um, in Genesis 26, and Jacob, in Genesis 28, God's people keep multiplying. And here at the end of Exodus 2, it's all about God's covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because the people of Israel are God's people. He has a plan for them. He cares for them. He sees their suffering. He hears their groaning. He remembers his covenant. It's not that he had forgotten a sort of Oops, yeah, sorry, I, I promised to bless you in your own land. Just slipped my mind. For God to remember means that he's now going to put into action his plan to fulfill his promise. He remembers his covenant and he knows. He knows exactly what's happening. He knows exactly what he's going to do. He knows and loves and cares for his people. That's not an arbitrary, ancient, false God. On your side one day, on your enemy's side the next. This is a God you can rely on. A God who has a plan for his people, for their blessing. So now as we look back through the story in in verses 1 to 22, there are so many clues that God is working out his plan to rescue his people. He's not just behind the scenes like a stagehand. He's the author and the director, making sure that that what he'd planned would happen. He's doing what he'd said he'd do. And because he's powerful, it's happening. So let's start with Moses in his basket. The word used for basket is ark. The only other time it's used in the Bible is Noah's ark. Noah's ark was how God rescued his people from death in the flood. Moses' ark is where God rescued him from death in the river. Those first readers of Exodus would have already read Genesis. They'd have known what God did for Noah. And as as they read Exodus 2, they'll they'll see this strange word, ark. God's doing it again. He's bringing rescue from death in an ark. He's remembered his people and he's acting to save them. And those, 
First readers of Exodus would have included many people who had lived through the stories of Exodus. Even if they weren't the generation who'd escaped from Egypt, they knew all about it. And as they saw how Moses' basket looked back to Noah's ark, when God saved his people from death in the water, they'd have realized that it also looked forward to the crossing of the Red Sea, when God again saved his people through the water that brought death and destruction to Pharaoh's armies. So Moses' Moses' basket is a model on a small scale. The rescue of Moses from the Nile is a model of the bigger rescue of about two million people through the Red Sea. Let me tell you about a lovely Cotswold village called uh, Borton on the Water. Has anyone been there? Oh, quite a few. It's idyllic. Except, oddly not, because that is actually a model of the village. That house in the middle was the house we were just looking at, and there's the, they're not giants, they're people walking around the model village. It's one to nine scale, it's pretty big, um, but it's not the real thing. But it does, it does point you to what the real thing looks like. That's what models do. And there are more models in Exodus 2 that point us to how God rescued his people later in Exodus. So in verse 11, Moses looks on the burdens of the people. He strikes down an Egyptian oppressor. He saves Rule's seven daughters from the other shepherds. And they tell their father in verse 19 that he delivered them. And those same words are used through the rest of Exodus to describe the things that God does for his people. He sees the oppression of his people in chapter 3. He strikes down the Egyptian firstborn at Passover in chapter 12. He saves Israel from Egypt in chapter 14. He delivers them chapter 18. Moses is a, is a little model of what God is going to do on a much bigger scale. Now, seeing that it's a model might help us understand how not to apply the bits of Exodus 2 that we might find difficult. So Moses kills an Egyptian. Is that something we should do? Well, no. Um, let's go back uh, to the model village. This is the pub. Um, but I'm not going to pop into the pub on the left to have a pint. Um, because that's the model. If I want a pint, I have to go into the real pub, the one on the right. And Moses is a model of what God is doing to save his people. I don't just do what Moses does. I look to the thing that he's a model of. And what I see from the story of Moses here is that God cares for his people and he has a plan for them. He's going to fulfill his covenant promises to them, and that's what I need to respond to. Which leads me to my third heading, and another sweep through the story. God's in charge, not us. God's got a plan for us. So trust him. So trust him. Now, if, if God were wicked, we wouldn't want to trust him. If he were random or capricious, we wouldn't be able to trust him. 
but God is good. He cares for his people. He hears their suffering and he fulfills his covenant promises to them so his people can trust him. And because he's in charge and and not us, we must trust him. We saw through throughout that whole story of Moses, verses 1 to 22, God wasn't mentioned. And neither was faith. But it was there. Let's read um, Hebrews 11, verses 23 to 27. If you, if you want to look it up, it's on page um, 1212. It's up on the screen. This covers exactly the same story as Exodus 2. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edicts. By faith, Moses, when he'd grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. It's all by faith. Moses' parents had faith. Moses had faith. It took faith for Moses' parents to put him in that basket. It took faith for for Moses to give up the palace, to identify with the people of Israel. It took faith for him to go to Midian. They may not have understood how God was going to do things. I don't think his parents knew that the princess would would take him into the palace, or or that Moses knew that he'd be rejected by his own people and have to leave Egypt, or that he'd be in Midian for 40 years. What was going on? What on earth was God doing? Well, they may not have known exactly, but they did know he was working out his purposes. They did know there was a future reward when God would fulfill those purposes. They could trust the details to him, even the hardship and the heartbreak, the risk and rejection, the suffering, because they knew that God had the big picture. God was in charge, not them, and God had a plan for them. And it's true for us just as it was true for them. Only it's even more wonderfully clear. There's a clue in that passage in Hebrews, in verse 26. Moses considered the reproach of Christ, disgrace for the sake of Christ. He considered that greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Moses was willing to suffer knowing that God would one day fulfill his covenant perfectly in Christ. I don't think Moses knew the details, but I think he knew the big picture, and he trusted God. And what Moses hadn't fully seen, we have seen in Jesus. The whole of the Exodus, such a wonderful display of of God's power to save his people according to his plan, is a model of God's ultimate plan to save his people at the cross. Let's go back to Borton on the Water with its model village. 
on the left is a real house and straight in the middle is the model of that real house. But there in front of the model house is a model of the model village, a model within a model. Now the models of chapter 2 we've seen are models of the exodus from Egypt, but that is a model of our salvation from sin. So Moses saw his people suffering, he struck down the Egyptian, saved those seven women, and God saw the Israelites enslaved by Pharaoh. He struck down the Egyptians and delivered his people 40 years later into the promised land. And God sees the suffering of his people enslaved by sin and death. And at the cross, Jesus struck down Satan and defeated death and rescued his people for eternal life with him. Moses came through being placed in the river that brought death. And he led his people through the Red Sea that brought death to the Egyptians. Jesus went through death to resurrection life. And he brings his people through death to eternal life. That's where we put our faith. In Jesus. Don't don't get fixated on the model. Don't try to emulate the model. We're not called to do what Moses' parents did. We're not called to do exactly what Moses did here, but we are called to have the faith that they did. A faith in the God who is in charge. In the God who has a plan. A plan that he is working out for us in Jesus. A plan to bring us from death to life, from sin to holiness. For those who trust Jesus, he saved us from sin and he will deliver us to eternal life with him in the new creation. He doesn't promise to make life easy now, though. There will be hurt and hostility. There will be sadness and suffering. And many of us here are going through very difficult times. They were difficult times for Moses' parents, for Moses, for the people of Israel. God doesn't promise to take those troubles away now. And it is right to to ask God, what's going on? What are you doing? It's right to ask him to take those troubles away. And sometimes he does that now. But whether he does or not, he's always in charge, not us. And he has a plan for us. A plan which he's working out for our eternal good. I want to finish with this verse from Romans 8. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. That purpose to be made more and more like Jesus. To bring us finally into glorious and eternal life with him. So trust him. And pray that he would fulfill his promise in your life. Amen.